comes to your mind when you think of a bounty hunter? Do you imagine a cowboy wrangling outlaws in dusty saloons? You a bounty hunter? Yeah, he's got to do something for a living these days. Diane ain't much of a living boy. Today's bounty hunters look a lot different from the ones in spaghetti westerns. I'm talking about bug bounty hunters. These are ethical hackers who help companies fix the bugs in their systems before the bad guys find them. Imagine us as kind of your security company that comes and we say, oh, hey, this window is unlocked, or did you forget to uh, remove the combination from your safe from the top of your uh, desktop? From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, we explore the world of ethical hacking. And later, the biggest ethical questions families face when a loved one falls into a vegetative state. But first, the bug bounty industry is booming. Daniel Graham is a computer science professor at the University of Virginia and the author of Ethical Hacking, a hands-on introduction. He says many bug hunters face an ethical dilemma. Should they report the bug and the fix they just found in exchange for a modest sum or sell it on the dark market for much more? Daniel, I always think of hacking as something nefarious. Tell me about ethical hacking. Yeah, um, so the key idea behind ethical hacking is that we want to discover bugs and vulnerabilities, which are holes in the program, ways people could break in before the bad guys do. So imagine us as kind of your security company that comes and we say, oh, hey, this window is unlocked. Or did you forget to uh, remove the combination from your safe from the top of your uh, desktop? So that's kind of what ethical hacking is. It's simulating uh, attacks against an environment uh, so that we can discover vulnerabilities before uh, state actors or bad state actors or malicious people do. Where'd you get the idea for writing a book like this? Were you once a hacker yourself as a kid? (laughs) No comment. (laughs) Um, I I did get into hacking when I was very young. So I started off during the kind of tech boom trying to start a company called spyadeal.com. And we bought the domain name and the idea was to sell video games online. And I get a call from my dad and he says, hey, you should go look at your website. And it turned out that a bunch of people had hacked the site and uploaded some uh, Enya-style music and put a picture on it saying they'd pwned me and I was so sad. Um, I said, whoa, I, I got to learn how to do this. Um, and so I spent a lot of time kind of reading on forums and online. And then uh, before I came to UVA uh, to teach, I, um, I taught at a small college in the Shenandoah called Bridgewater College. And a lot of the students were interested in a uh, hacking class. And so I decided that I wanted to go ahead and, and teach this. And I looked around and there were no textbooks that taught some of these concepts. But don't you think that's because people are afraid to put out in standardized book form how to do all this stuff, even if it's meant to be so you can learn how to thwart it? Yeah, I, I do think there, there are some concerns about that. But it, with, with all engineering disciplines, there's this kind of trust. With chemical engineering, chemists you know, will learn the fundamentals where they can make chemical weapons, but uh, they choose not to. And people who study viruses and epidemics have that potential to release these things to the world. With a lot of disciplines, there's this choice um, about how to use the information. And this is the kind of ethics notion of, of hacking. So there are people in this field who you called bug bounty hunters, people doing ethical hacking, people who are looking for flaws in systems, getting paid to do it, and then helping the companies find ways to fix it? Yeah, like a bounty hunter, like uh, that TV show Dog the Bounty Hunter. Um, There are all these hackers around the world that are searching for vulnerabilities and breaking into systems, and they get compensated when they find a bug. And so the compensation can range from $500 to $5,000 or even more. Are they hired initially by the company to find a flaw 
Or do they break in, find a flaw, then tell the company, hey, I'll tell you the flaw if you give me money? Yeah, so there are some platforms like BugCrowd that have companies sign deals with hackers or contracts with hackers. So hackers will go to BugCrowd and then they'll have a list of companies that are open to bug bounties. So like Tesla is one of them, Google is also a part of the bug bounty program. And then these hackers will go through and they'll explore vulnerabilities in Google, Tesla, and so on. And if they find something, they'll report it through BugCrowd. And then BugCrowd will share that with the company and they'll get information back. So one of the things that's really interesting was there's this was from Google Project Zero. They're a team within Google that's responsible for finding zero days, which are new vulnerabilities that you've had zero days to recover. And uh, they found a vulnerability in Starlink. So Starlink is Tesla's new space system. And it's the idea is that they're going to bring internets to the world. And so instead of running wires in the ground or on telephone poles, if you want to bring internet to the globe, one of the best ways to do it is to deploy satellites all around the globe. And then people can connect up to these satellites for internet, like just like you get satellite TV. And so there was a person at Project Zero who was exploring, going in and looking for vulnerabilities in SpaceX's new internet system. And they ran a scan and they found a way to get in. Um, the type of scan was called an NMAP scan and they found an open port and they started investigating it. And they said, hey, Tesla, is this port supposed to be open? And they go, nope, this is actually a big vulnerability in our system. We'll pay you a bounty. And so I think he made $5,000 for for that bounty paid directly from Tesla. And again, you don't think those people will go to the nefarious types and say, Tesla will give me 5000 to close the hole. Will you give me 50 to let you know where it is? It's even more than 50 Actually, there are vulnerabilities that sell on the dark market for millions of dollars. There's a group called NSO, uh, which is an Israeli company, and they sell software that lets governments and security forces break into cell phones. And so one of the most coveted type of vulnerabilities for cell phones is called a zero-click vulnerability. So a zero-click vulnerability means that they can send you a message and you don't have to click on it at all. Zero clicks. And so the NSO group will buy vulnerabilities from around the world. And so there are a lot of people on the dark market that will sell these zero-click vulnerabilities to state governments, to groups like the NSO. And so if you can get a zero-day vulnerability, it might be more effective than reporting it for $5,000. You could go and you could sell it uh, in one of these marketplaces for millions of dollars, and then the world doesn't know about it. This, there's this choice, there's this kind of ethical choice. You know, Do you act ethically and get a $5,000 reward, or do you act unethically and get a million-dollar reward? In your own heart of heart, understanding this crazy world where we're filled with vulnerabilities on the internet, what in your mind is the safest thing any of us can do? I think one of the safest things to do is to always keep your machine up to date. Um, there's a new term that's going around called digital citizenship, which is this idea that we're kind of citizens in this real world, um, but there's also this digital world that's, that's coming. And so how do we become citizens in this digital world? You know, how do we know how to kind of protect ourselves, act, treat each other? And so there are groups that are working on curriculum from K through 12 around ideas of digital citizenship. So how to, you know, identify malicious emails, how to avoid suspicious paces on the internet, um, how to treat each other on the internet. And so I think kind of the easy answer to the, the question is, you know, keep everything up to date. But the kind of bigger answer is that we're going to have to, as a society, as a culture, kind of build this new idea of citizenship into our curriculum and into our culture as a whole. Doesn't it surprise you that with all the power of our government and military, that we do seem super vulnerable to even basic hacks? I mean, the internet itself was created by the military. Wouldn't you think that they would have come up with, you know, the internet 10.0 by now? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
why why is this such a hard problem to solve? I guess it's at the heart of it. And then why can't our government yeah. protect us? Um, or itself, frankly, right? Or or itself, yeah. I think one of the hard parts is that there's some tenants in the internet as a whole. This idea of it should be accessible to everyone. And it should also be available anonymously, right? Nobody should be able to track or limit speech. And that's a part of, I think, an American value, this value of freedom of speech, uh, liberty. And so we want our technology to also have this notion of liberty. And then with policing and patrol, you know, if we build that into the technology, this infringes on, I think, a core American value, or maybe even a core global value that there should be freedom and liberty, and that value should propagate to our technology. So what advice do you have for city governments, hospitals? I know just recently the legislature of Virginia had its system hacked, right? Yes. So I think having ethical hackers or or groups called red teams come in and and do audits, because it's really, we do that with financial systems all the time. There are companies like Ernst & Young that will go into a company and look at the books and say, well, you know, is something wrong here? And it will report to the shareholders. I think we also need market level scale reports for hacks. So we should have companies, you know, be required to be audited and city governments be required to be audited um, and then have these reports shared with the company. And then after a while shared with the public. In terms of state and governments, I think governments are actually doing a lot to secure critical infrastructure. And I think one of the challenges is that so much of our productivity depends on technology. Like losing the Wi-Fi is almost as bad as having the water go out. I think if you asked people, you know, would you rather lose Wi-Fi for a day or uh, running water, people might say running water. <laughs> And and that says <laughs> some, and that says something about what people think you know is a valuable utility, and so if you think that you know Wi-Fi is more important than running water, it's important that we secure the infrastructure that makes that possible. The chess game in all this is so mind-boggling. It makes me want to just sign off, you know, and go deep into the woods. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I feel that way sometimes as well. <laughs> um, I, I I'm kind of convinced that. With all the tools that we build, we can use them for good or for evil. And really, it's our culture and the human element that will really dictate what happens. Because we have destructive tools now that we don't use. And we don't use them because as human beings, we choose not to use them. Like as a collective, we're agreeing that these things are not not good. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful about the future because I kind of trust in our general goodness as humans. What a great note to end on. Daniel, thank you so much for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you, Sarah. I I really enjoyed talking with you as well. Um, And to all the future hackers out there, ethical hackers out there, I'm so excited for your journey and welcome to the community. I'm ethically hacking, skinning and stack smashing. I'm on a bug hunt, so you better get the patching. I'm ethically hacking, skinning and I'm on a bug hunt, so you better get the patch. DNS and CBE. Daniel Graham is a computer science professor at the University of Virginia. He's also the author of Ethical Hacking, a hands-on introduction to breaking in. Coming up next, the bioethics of disorders of consciousness. No language is a challenge. Nah, not for me. I'm ethically hacking, scanning and stack smashing. Follow me on a thought experiment. You just suffered a traumatic brain injury. You're unconscious, and doctors say you've fallen into a vegetative state. What would you want your family to do? Continue life support or withdraw care? Andrew Peterson is a philosophy professor at George Mason University. He says family members are more likely to want to withdraw care because of something he calls prognostic pessimism. Andrew Peterson has been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Andrew, your research centers on the moral and ethical questions around disorders of consciousness in people who are in a vegetative state after suffering brain damage. What are the differences between disorders of consciousness and, let's say, being certified to be brain dead? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it's one when I started learning about disorders of consciousness, one that, that kind of confused me. Um, so there's a taxonomy of disorders of consciousness. And those individuals that are awake but show no indication of awareness, those individuals are diagnosed as being in the vegetative state. Individuals who have no wakefulness, no awareness, are completely unarousably unconscious, those individuals are in a comatose state. And then there are some individuals who may recover from either a comatose state or a vegetative state and emerge into something that's called a minimally conscious state, which is an individual who shows these sleep-wake cycles, these sort of semi-regular circadian rhythms, uh, but also might show some responses to commands to a physician, the person might raise their right arm to command when a physician tells them to do that. So there's kind of three diagnostic categories that we're referring to when we talk about disorders of consciousness, comatose state, the vegetative state, and the minimally conscious state. What are the biggest moral and ethical concerns that family members face when they have a loved one who's fallen into a vegetative state through brain trauma? Yeah. Um, Will my loved one ever come back? And if, you know, when I'm visiting my loved one in the hospital, does my loved one hear my voice, feel the touch of my hand? Is my loved one in pain? After recovery, if recovery even happens, what's that recovery going to look like? Will life ever be normal again? You know, whatever normal means. Those are, you know, the things that are going through the minds of, of families when they get that call and they, you know, from, from the hospital and, you know, they're, they're talking and in consults with the clinical team. What are the differences between the perspectives of the doctors and the family members at that moment when everyone is realizing, oh, this is going to be a persistent vegetative state going forward? Yeah, there are many times in which physicians and families and caregivers are on the same page about what to do. But there are cases when this can diverge, right? And what might happen is that clinicians who have cared for patients like this, who know what, the, what life is going to look like down the road. And so when families are making these decisions, most of the conflict comes up when you know, a physician says, there's no use in going forward. This is not a life that's worth living. You know, there may be these kinds of value judgments that seep into um, uh, uh, prognostic attitudes there. Um, and families are saying, no, 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 we want to we want to stick with it. And that's where I think you can get the real conflict. You know, and if 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 physicians are not anticipating this kind of conflict, if you don't have the right kind of folks on on the clinical care team, social workers who are really sort of massaging the relationship here, you can have a real breakdown of communication and a breakdown of trust that can occur between families on the one hand and then the clinical team on the other hand. You study a phenomenon called prognostic pessimism on the part of doctors and caregivers. What is that? What's prognostic pessimism? Right. So it's kind of this, this negative attitude or residue that's attached to catastrophic brain injury. And it's this thought that sort of puts you on a one-way street to a poor quality of life, a, a life that's not worth living. But these are all assumptions that are made prior to getting the right kind of information that would indicate that a person really is going to have a poor recovery. So for instance, uh, in 2011, there was this study that was done of six Canadian level one trauma centers. There was 720 brain injury patients that were in this study. And of the patients that died, um, which is about 30% of those patients, about three-fourths were due to the withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment, right? And those decisions were made within 72 hours of injury. And that's it's actually a time period that's often too early for accurate prognostication. So something's happening in the communication and the family consults that's 
nudging families to make these decisions in a way that's not often evidence-based. And so there's this worry that the sort of phenomena of prognostic pessimism is seeping into those conversations and is motivating families to make the decision to withdraw treatment before having all the prognostic information at hand. And in no way do I want to argue that families shouldn't have the right, the, um, the authority to make these decisions to withdraw treatment, right? Um, I think that they absolutely should. I think that what concerns me is that many of these decisions are being made regarding assumptions about what life is going to be like with, say, a disability, a cognitive disability, and the kinds of negative attitudes that, that we sometimes attach to those kinds of conditions. What are those negative biases? You mean on the part of the doctors? Yeah, well, I think I think on the part of doctors, I think that, that this could also happen on the part of families too, right? Able-bodied individuals, non-disabled individuals will often think that living with a disability is going to be an awful experience. But when you actually go out and you ask folks who have disabilities, cognitive disabilities, physical disabilities, what life is like for them, they report having a much higher quality of life than non-disabled people would assume. So there's a concern then in, in like these family consultations when they're trying to work through prognosis, when trying to work through how to make these super, super ethically fraught decisions, that these sort of value-laden judgments come in that, that sort of turn on the disability paradox itself, right? That, that life is going to be awful with a disability. That, it, that just turns out not to be true. It's not borne out by the evidence at all. There was a famous case that played out nationally involving this, a severely brain-damaged Florida woman in the late 90s. Her husband and parents initially were on the same side, united for extensive care for her, and then ended up fighting bitterly when he said, I want to withdraw feeding and other support for her survival. That's right. You're you're mentioning the case that many Americans are familiar with, which is the case of Terry Schiavo. And she she did lose consciousness um, after suffering a, a cardiac arrest in her Florida apartment. And a, as a result of the locks of oxygen to her brain, she was diagnosed as being in a vegetative state, which we've we've described this this state of being awake but being unaware. And it was it was after eight years after her initial cardiac arrest and her diagnosis that her husband, Michael Schiavo, yeah, petitioned the Florida courts to remove uh, her feeding tube so that she could be allowed to die. But that's right, her, her, her family, her parents, who were devout Roman Catholics, they completely disagreed with this. They thought that the removal of food and fluids and allowing Terry to die was completely inconsistent with their values and with, with they, what they thought to be her values as well, um, driven by, uh, by Roman Catholicism, by her faith. She eventually died after withdrawal of treatment in 2005? Yes. As a philosopher of neuroscience, what does the case represent to you? The thing that's really interesting about these cases, aside from the sort of gripping ethical and legal issues that emerge from them. As a philosopher of neuroscience, I also like to step back and think about how these cases illuminate big questions in philosophy. Namely, how do we know that anybody else is conscious? Um, so, so think about it, right? So this is a question that I start out my philosophy of mind class with all the time, which is how do we ever know that another person is conscious? And all the students to sort of brush that off, right? It's a question that you, you know, when you're talking to friends over coffee or beer, it's like, well, of course I know everybody's conscious, right? It's a feeling we have deep in our gut. But it turns out that physicians all around the United States and all around the world are also asking this question on a daily basis, right? With regard to particular patients that have just suffered a cardiac arrest um, or have had a traumatic brain injury because of a car accident, for instance, they're asking themselves, how do I know that this person is conscious that just presented to me in the neuro ICU? And it turns out there's all sorts of assumptions that we make, that physicians make about 
what counts as good evidence of consciousness in these individuals. And one of the things that's really cool about this line of study is that we realize very quickly that in philosophy, what we would call the epistemic question of consciousness, how do we know that another person is conscious, is inextricably linked from the ethical questions of consciousness, right? Consciousness matters to us so much, right? We treat other creatures that are conscious in a way that we treat other things that aren't conscious differently. I treat my daughter, who I I'm pretty certain that she's conscious, right? Even though I'm a philosopher, right? I treat her differently than I would a rock because I, I know a rock can't be harmed, doesn't feel pain. And so consciousness matters to us in this really, really important and peculiar way. Those things that are conscious, we have moral obligations too. But those things that aren't conscious, we often don't think we have moral obligations to those things. After so much national trauma with people divided over the Terry Schiavo case, do you think the decades that followed were relatively silent because a sort of national collective decision was made to quietly endorse end-of-life directives? Well, I think that there has been a shift in, in the law and in the public psyche uh, that the right to die is the norm. Um, but I, I also think that there's been a change in the way that we think about individuals with brain injury because the science has advanced so much. We know so much better now, you know, since the time of Terry Schiavo when she initially had her cardiac arrest. We, if we had the tools that we have now then, right, we would have been able to predict for Terry's family, Terry's husband, if she would recover with high probability whether she would recover and what that kind of recovery would look like. You know, I think that the, the thing that's is so hard to reckon with is when you're trying to make such the most ethically fraught of ethically fraught decisions to make is to, you know, withdraw treatment without them without them there to give their input, right? Because all you want to do is like right. ask them like, what do I do, right? What do you want me to do? And so, you know, it's it's quite miraculous that we've been able to have such advances in science where we've been able to reduce that level of uncertainty such that families can make decisions that really do reflect the values of their loved one or their, their own values. Andrew Peterson is a philosophy professor at George Mason University. He's been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. Duncan Richter is a professor of English Rhetoric and Humanistic Studies at Virginia Military Institute. Duncan teaches the cadets there a course on ethics. He's also the author of a book called Why Be Good? He says taking an ethics course teaches you how to think through all sides of an issue and determine what resonates with you. I mean, I try to do a lot in that course. It's partly an introduction to philosophy, a sort of history of ideas. But also, I want to get the students to think about what they think is right and what's wrong and what's good and what's evil and, and why. To understand what other people think and why they think it. You know, slavery, the Holocaust, that kind of thing is just clearly evil. And you can think of examples of things that are clearly good. But we tend to focus on the stuff that's difficult and the things that people disagree about. How many years have you taught ethics in college? Twenty-two have you noticed the students have changed at all? Have they come these days with, let's say, less grounding in a formal religion? I think maybe. I'm not sure. I mean, I teach at, at the Virginia Military Institute, which is a, we have pretty conservative students. They tend to be fairly religious. Um, I haven't noticed a big change there. But certainly the things that people care about and get upset about have changed over the years. And I think maybe they're confidence in their beliefs has has changed. You get a lot of people these days, a lot of students saying things like, this is considered wrong or this is considered right. And they're reluctant to actually say, this is wrong or this is right. And to, to take ownership of 
moral values or principles. Does that worry you at all? Yes. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I think to some extent it's just a matter of how they express their ideas and how they've been taught to express them. So that's less worrying. But to the extent that they think you just can't have moral beliefs or principles, I think that's a real problem. That's that's scary. It's so interesting that you do teach ethics at a military college. It's not a U.S. military college, but it has uniformed cadets with very mm-hmm. strict rules of pride and behavior. Do you teach them, therefore, a different set of philosophers and principles and case studies than you might in a college of a different sort? Not very consciously. I probably do. I mean, I've I've tried a bunch of different things over the years and, and go with what works. And we do look at military ethics a little bit, but it's it's not a military ethics course. It's a general ethics course. There's also something called an ethics bowl where colleges come together once a year and compete with each other. How do you win an ethics right. bowl? Well, not by being saintly. It's it's more <laughs> like a sort of debate. You get sent a couple of months in advance 15 cases to study. And then when you get to the competition, you're give, you're told which case it is and you're given a specific question about it. And you then only have a couple of minutes to get your answer to that question ready you're graded on on all of this you know have you answered the question properly is your answer clear and logical have you referred to relevant ethical principles to support what you're saying do you show that you understand different points of view that that kind of thing receiving the cases was great because there were 15 of them and they were really if you'd studied them you would know what was going on in the world i mean there were things like questions about free speech and political correctness environmental protection and issues. And then another question we had was about should Facebook, for example, use censorship to limit fake news or to shut down fake news? And is that, you know, is that censorship and is that bad or is it is it a good thing to stop false ideas getting out there? You know, our politics are so galvanized now. Do you sense a heightened level of debate, conversation and engagement? in your classes because of the political divide we're in? I think it's it's the other way around, actually. I think people are a little bit... This may be specific to VMI rather than anywhere else, but the cadets all live you know, in the same barracks. They all have to live together. They all have to get along. And anything very controversial, they're likely to try to avoid talking about it. And I think even at a place where we have you know a lot of conservative students, a lot of Republicans... They know that opinions about Trump are, are quite divided, um, and I think they're wary of, of causing conflict. Where do the students seem most engaged in your class? What sorts of ideas seem to most capture their fancy? Well, that that's one of the things that's changed over the years. I mean, abortion used to be huge. I used to teach for about two weeks arguments for and against abortion. I quickly learned that the first day... I just had to not really try to teach anything because after about five minutes of class, somebody would say something and it would just set off this big argument. And for the next hour, you'd have people arguing back and forth. And I just had to let that happen. And then the second class, we could actually think more calmly about it. That doesn't happen anymore. That just doesn't seem to be such a hot button topic. What I find these days really gets them interested is things that you wouldn't expect them to to be so interested in. So, for example, I teach a religion course, and we had a very lively class about an attempt to prove the existence of God. It's called the ontological argument. It's very technical, but it's very short, and people are always convinced it must be wrong. But they, yeah, they spend about an hour trying to explain why it's wrong and, and offering different suggestions to that. Don't you love that they're so engaged? It was great. Yes, yes. That's one of those classes you, you dream about having. In 2008, you wrote a wonderful, fairly small book that was a survey course, really, of the philosophical arguments that maybe stems from a character in Plato's Republic, where the character argues, should we be good or should we be really devoted to our own Mm self-interest? Yes, the the character's called Thrasymachus, which is a bit of a mouthful, but he, yeah, he, he thinks that we just should not try to be good. If you try to do the right thing, if you care about that, that means putting other people first, at least sometimes, and that's never 
a rational thing to do, and so you're a fool if you do that, and you just shouldn't. So he thinks that if you can ever break the rules, you should do so, and ideally you would become a dictator or a tyrant and make the rules yourself. And really the rest of the Republic is Plato's response to that challenge. I mean, Plato doesn't agree with him, but it's really hard to explain what's wrong with that way of thinking because it makes a certain kind of sense. Aristotle thinks that what everybody wants is to live a good life, um, but we disagree about what that means. And he concludes that you really haven't lived a good life if you've, you know, if you've become a dictator, if you're Stalin or somebody like that. That's not a good life. That's a that's a bad life. You failed. Um, who else? David Hume has a very different kind of response. What Hume thinks is that you should be the kind of person you would want one of your children to marry. And so you want that person to be honest and trustworthy and hardworking and entertaining and fun to be around. If you're a, a rule breaker or a criminal or a, a tyrant, you're not going to be fun to be around. You know, you think about, I always think about Stalin um, forcing his friends to stay up all night watching westerns and drinking vodka with him. And they didn't <laughs> want to be there. They wanted to go to bed, but they they had to do it. Otherwise, they knew they might get killed, basically. Then let's see. Well, then you've got uh, Immanuel Kant, again, a very different kind of person who thinks that it's the nature of ethics to follow pretty strict rules along the lines of the Ten Commandments, That rules like that. So Kant thinks that ethics is about, you know, don't kill, don't lie. And there really isn't much of an answer to why you shouldn't. It's just your duty. You must not do those things because they're wrong. Before you wrote Why Be Good, you had written a piece on a 20th century philosopher. Some consider the greatest philosopher of the 20th century. Ludwig Wittgenstein, yes. He's very interesting. I, th I mean, interesting man, interesting life, interesting work. Was it his life or his philosophy that drew you to him? Originally, it was his philosophy. I was, you know, I was my senior year in college preparing for final exams, and I hadn't taken a course on Wittgenstein. And I was studying lots of you know, theories about the nature of the mind and that kind of thing. And I had a friend who was taking a course on Wittgenstein, and she would argue with me back and forth. And eventually, it took a while, but eventually I became convinced that she was completely right and all the other theories I'd studied were wrong. So I thought, Wittgenstein's right. But his life is very interesting as well. I think that helps attract people to his work. He was born around the same time, I guess, as Hitler mm -hmm. in Austria. That's right. To a fabulously wealthy and accomplished family, mm -hmm. youngest of many children. Yes, that's right. They were very, very rich. I mean, so it would be like Bill Gates's son or someone like that. The youngest son of an extremely wealthy family grew up in a very cultured household. They had composers coming to their house. I mean, their house was called, I think, the Wittgenstein Palace. He had um, a brother who was a concert pianist? Yeah, very accomplished, very talented, very talented family. Um, but he he became convinced that all that wealth was a bad thing, and so he gave it away. Um, he volunteered to fight in the First World War. He didn't have to. He had medical problems, but he, he insisted on fighting. And once he was in the army, he insisted on being put in the most dangerous position he could. I don't know exactly where he was, but maybe in no man's land, identifying where the, the, the British, I guess, troops were and calling in artillery strikes on them. So a very dangerous position to be in, but he wanted to sort of test himself in that way. I think he believed that if he was afraid to die, there must be something wrong with the way he was living his life. He had brothers who committed suicide. Yes, I think three. One of them shot himself during the First World War. He was an officer and his troops were not obeying his orders. I think they were running away and he didn't know what to do and shot himself in, in shame, I guess. One of them wanted to be an actor, I believe, and his father didn't approve. And he very theatrically drank poison in a bar in, I think it was Berlin, and died. And then the other one disappeared in the Chesapeake Bay. And we don't really know whether that was suicide or not, but it seems suspicious. Going back to the course you teach on ethics at Virginia Military Institute, it's very heartening that there are people training our minds and training the minds of others to really be good listeners, deep thinkers, and moral thinkers. Mm -hmm. I think it's important. I mean, it's, it's very difficult because you think about teaching physics or history, you want somebody who 
knows a lot of physics, knows a lot of history, and imparts those facts. When it comes to ethics, I think we might think there are no facts, or, or who's to say which person knows those facts. We tend to focus so much on the gray areas that we forget that some things really are black and white. You know, the Nazis really were evil. Slavery really is evil. Torture really is evil. I think it's important to remind people about those things that we all know, but we might forget about, especially when we focus on the more difficult or controversial issues. It's also important to realize that not every academic course is filling people's heads with facts. It's getting people to think and helping them understand each other, to read, to listen, to develop their own ideas as well. Duncan Richter is a professor of English, Rhetoric, and Humanistic Studies at Virginia Military Institute and the author of Why Be Good. If you sideswipe a stranger's car and nobody sees, what would you do? Would you leave a note? Would you track down the owner? Bill Hawk is a professor of philosophy and religion at James Madison University. And Erica Lewis is a professor of nursing at James Madison University. They teach college students coping strategies for deciding what to do when faced with an ethical dilemma. Bill, your university has launched a program to teach ethical reasoning skills campus-wide. Why campus-wide? Well, the idea is that there are so many difficult decisions, and many of us don't have a clear way of making those decisions. So we're trying to prepare our students to live as citizens in a complex world. And so we have designed our program as an eight-key-question process. What is the fair thing to do? What are the short and long-term outcomes for everyone involved? What are the responsibilities in play here? What best expresses the person that I am or the person that I desire to be? What optimizes personal liberty or autonomy? How would I act if I really cared for everyone in this situation? We call that the empathy question. What do legitimate authorities expect in this case? And then finally, what rights, if any, are in play in this decision that I need to make? Isn't that too hard to apply eight questions <sighs> to a simple but thorny moral dilemma? It's not too hard because if you think about it, we learn many lists of things. The moral life is a complex life, and we thought that reducing this to any shorter list would leave out a significant consideration. Years ago in the newsroom, the owner of the radio station where I worked used to say to me, there's one question, are you fair? That is a good question. And what, what you will find is that someone who says that typically will have been raised in a context where fairness is the most dominant consideration. People have sort of their go-to question. Some people have what I call the empathy question. They go to, how do I actually show care in this case? I was raised in a family with my father who was military, and my key question was always, what's the responsible thing to do? And so <gasps> you'll find those sort of baseline or dominant questions that basically drive people's ethical consideration. And what we're trying to do is open that up a bit and give people opportunity to consider other things beyond that which they were raised with when they were children. Erica, what is your go-to key question, do you think? I think it varies depending on the situation. Um, but as a nurse, I really identify with the empathy question. You can identify what you would do if you really cared deeply about that person as opposed to considering what is the fair thing. And so that's why each of the questions used together can create balance. How are you using the eight key questions in medicine? So I work at James Madison University with nursing students, and my primary role is helping those students to apply these questions when they get into the hospital. They can use these questions to help determine what the right action is going to be. So um, an example that comes to mind is a student who gave a patient a medication through the wrong route. The medication was meant to be given into a a muscle, and the student gave the medication into the vein. The error ended up not causing any harm to that patient, but the patient was aware that something was going on. We needed to weigh whether or not we were going to tell that patient that the situation had occurred. 
So knowing that there'd been no clinical effect to that patient, there could have been some justification to not tell that patient about that event. Um, however, in empathizing with that patient and thinking, what would we do if that patient was our mother? Um, and also considering the responsibilities that we have, if we look at the American Nurses Association Code of Ethics, we have a responsibility to be forthright with our patients about their care. So we ended up deciding that we would tell that patient about the event. It was a difficult conversation, and I think that we negotiated it well, and it ultimately led to greater trust and a better outcome for both the patient and also the student. Is there a way that you all could give me some examples where we tend not to use the eight key questions time and time again in our lives? Uh, there are many times in which we basically do a fallback to that response that we were raised. And just to be perfectly honest, I was raised in a family in which I was, uh, was both a racist and a sexist as a young man. Right. You know, when I went to college and I had certain experiences, I recognized those features of my own background and my immediate response might have been an immediate racist or sexist response. And we have a lot of people now doing what are called implicit response studies about bias. And there's no question in my mind that I would show that kind of bias in my immediate response. But what I've done is to work through that way that I was raised by asking questions that challenge that upbringing and would challenge my, my implicit racist and sexist response. Sarah, I have two potential examples. The first being a student who pulled into a parking lot and um, hit another car. They needed to make a choice as to whether or not to write a note about this or try and find the person and tell them. And they called their parents and asked for advice. And their parents told them that they should just, you know, did anyone see this? You should probably go about your own way and not say anything. But they used the eight key questions to reason and ended up writing that note about the car accident and, and telling the person what had happened. A second potential example was a student working with a patient in the healthcare setting. And the student felt that the patient was not receiving the quality of care that was needed and was really intimidated about speaking up, felt very powerless in the situation to speak up use the eight key questions to consider what their responsibility was and who they wanted to be as a nurse and what was that patient's rights as a patient. The reasoning process gave them not only the courage, but also the language to speak up about the situation. But don't most of us spend much less time thinking about and arriving at actually what turn out to be the same conclusions when we face ethical dilemmas? That's uh, a, a question that I really can't answer. I don't know for sure if I had I'd done something differently, but I, what I do know is that by going through the process, I felt a sense of comfort and a sense of empowerment. Most of us operate on what we call reflex. Yeah. And the many uh, studies are showing that we basically do a quick, intuitive response to situations. And that what we need to do is to, when important decisions come before us, we need to interrupt that intuitive, quick response with a kind of reflection. These questions help. Actually, what they do is they trigger different parts of our brain. Neurologists who are using functional magnetic resonance imaging find that when you introduce a question like this, it sometimes moves it from an emotional part of our brain to a more analytical part, or vice versa. If you can ask the empathy question in the right way, you can actually move from the analytical part of our processing to the emotional part. And that more holistic response to situations, we think, will give us better choices. My concern is that if people are taught to morally reason without given that framework for also acting, that that, that could harm them. We've seen in the literature that that can actually cause decreased moral sensitivity, can also lead to moral distress. Moral distress is widespread in medicine, and there's um, certain clinical situations that have been found to be root causes, such as giving false hope to patients. Oh, no. False hope causes moral distress? Yes. Yeah, so for a um, nurse who believes that a um, treatment is not going to be advantageous to a patient, um, if they continue those treatments, um, that has been found to cause great distress for um, some nurses. And if you're not acting according to your moral agency, 
um, then that distress um, can occur and can ultimately lead to burnout, can lead to people leaving their profession, and I think more concerning can lead to a decreased moral sensitivity. I bet you find students are actually hungry for this kind of guidance. Here they've arrived in a sea of fellow 18, 19, and 20-year-olds with no real moral authority after years and years of being under the care of parents. And they're probably hungry for a little guidance and, you know, ways forward. You're absolutely right about that. When we do a program for all of the incoming uh, students at James Madison University, and many of them make that kind of comment. Uh, I see this as a very practical, valuable skill set that I can use in my life personally and um, in my future. Well, this is terrific work. Bill and Erica, thank you for sharing your insights about this with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you, Sarah, for having us, and uh, we appreciate the opportunity. What good am I if I know and don't do? If I see and don't say, if I look right through you. Bill Hawk is a professor of philosophy and religion at James Madison University. Erica Lewis is a professor of nursing at James Madison University. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>